Chelsea Fairless. And welcome back to Every Outfit. Another week has gone by. What's happened? I mean, before we started recording, I guess I never told you that I live on a block where there's a house where Marilyn Monroe's house used to be, the one she lived in with Joe DiMaggio. And I guess I never told you that I discovered through my TikTok addiction that the woman who's living there is some 1950s cosplay influencer. Truly a nightmare. That's like living next to like a meth lab or something. And she talks like this. And how I discovered it was, I've seen her pop up my For You page and she's like, oh, hello, let's do makeup. And then, you know, someone asked her a question where it's like, how did you come to live in the Marilyn Monroe house? And I went, wait, hold on. And she's been living there for a year. And I've seen this chick before I realized who she was on TikTok for a few months. It's not fair that someone that annoying gets to live in that house. For one thing, the house was on the market, what, a few years ago? Yeah. And Lord and I were like, we have to go inside. So we went to, there was like an open house or something. And we went and looked at Marilyn's bathtub and Marilyn's pool and all of that stuff. It was fabulous. So I just like really hate the idea of this chick living there, especially because while she is some sort of beauty TikToker, it's like she needs like a full Dita Von Teese tutorial. She has highlighter all over her face. Well, the ring light and the amount of highlighter she's using are sort of fighting each other. I hope she's not listening. How fucked up would that be? If you heard your neighbor talking shit about talking you? shit about you on a podcast that you listen to, and then wow. I and then on my for you page, a TikTok pops up where it's like it's recently come to my attention. <laughs> <laughs> nightmares that's a hundred percent gonna happen to you our voices are her nightmare um you're gonna hate it even more because the tiktok that she talks about the house she was like you know my husband and i he has a name but i don't know his name my husband and i well you know we're looking at Marilyn's home so we saw what was getting demolished and we said are any other Marilyn monroe houses for sale and there was and we saw it and we loved it and we bought it oh god <laughs> kill me This is terrible. Speaking of other terrible things, Demi Lovato is (laughs) non-binary, which is obviously a huge blow to the non-binary community. My hearts go out to everyone. We're really doing this? (laughs) Well, what? I mean, that's not rude. Um, That's my comment on it. Just a long sigh. Look, if I'm non-binary, I'm like that gif of Homer Simpson slowly backing into a garden hedge. I'm like, Demi's here? Absolutely not. I'm so cis now. I said to you, who do we think is going to get platonically married first, Miley or Demi? (laughs) Miley and Demi? Well, yeah, then I realized they would probably platonic marry each other as promo for some kind of world tour they would do together. Yeah. The platonically married world tour. Uh, That's rough. But, you know, on the brighter side of non-binary news this week, Sarah Ramirez has been cast in And Just Like That. Um, They're a perfect choice. They're a perfect choice. They are a non-binary actor who you may know from a little show called Grey's Anatomy. I didn't realize, again, we posted about it yesterday. I didn't realize the overlap, although it completely makes sense, of people that love Grey's Anatomy and would also love reruns of Sex and the City. 
Well, they're also on everyone's parents' favorite show, Madam Secretary, I believe also playing a non-binary character. I would have to ask my parents who did indeed watch You every know what? I'll have to ask. Actually, both of our parents listen to the podcast. So mom and dad, you, yeah. you guys can tell us what the deal is with Sarah Ramirez's character. With, with them. With them. But beyond that, they're also like a pretty prolific New York theater actor. Like they have a Tony from I forget what. I imagine that Cynthia Nixon and them are kind of in the same world. For sure. And so queer Tony winners. (laughs) And so our minds couldn't help but travel and wonder, could this potentially be Miranda's love interest? I feel like we, in a sense, willed this into existence. We've been talking about Miranda being queer for such a long time that it's it's finally happened. Is this the law of attraction? Well, I mean, it might be. Okay, so this is what the press release says. It says that Sarah will be playing Shay Diaz, a non-binary queer stand-up comedian who hosts a podcast on which Carrie is regularly featured. Shay is a big presence with a big heart whose outrageous sense of humor and progressive human overview of gender roles has made them and their podcast very popular. So let's break this down because some have taken it. I saw in the comments in the post we did. Some have taken it as Carrie is on this podcast a bunch, but we took it to mean that probably this Shay character is flaming Carrie. I assume for past things she has said. <sighs> Look, I mean, the fact that they introduced this character as attached to a Carrie plotline, I believe is trying to throw us off the scent of this being a love interest for Miranda, right? And I'm imagining that their podcast is real time with Bill Maher, but like woke and different people are coming on and Carrie's coming on thinking that she's promoting the 20th anniversary edition of the Sex and the City book, which as we know is a collection of her columns. And either Shay or someone on the panel is like, what about that one column? Maybe one, she's- one column? Well, what yeah. about the pee shaming? What about the chicks with dick column? What about the biphobia column? You know what? I bet she's gonna get canceled for her like very homophobic coverage of uh, Bitsy Von Muffling's wedding. I imagine that that's going to be an entry point into Carrie going on some sort of rebranding, starting over journey. and Or or as I have said, a high fidelity journey of going back through all of the exes, which would be a fun way. And it would make sense how to bring Aiden back and also Justin Theroux. Although we've said, what if Justin Theroux, who played a boyfriend in season one, or uh, just a guy in season one, an author... And then an author again in season two. Uh, What if he was just a completely different author boyfriend? I would love that because like true fans of the show would get it. it. And those who don't would be like, oh, great. Justin Thoreau from The Leftovers. Love him. Yeah, exactly. Like they wouldn't realize that he had ever been on Sex in the City. So this character is a series regular on and just like that. There's no way that they're going to give a series regular role to someone that just hosts a podcast that Carrie is on. That's not a big enough plot point. Ergo, she must be Miranda's love interest. Yeah. So if this is the case, which again, we're willing it into existence. Yeah. And by the way, the scripts are completely written. So it's done. Whatever the story is going to be. I'm pretty sure the writer's room of that is wrapped because they're about to, to start shooting this summer. 
Yeah, SJP posted stories yesterday of what I imagine is the first fitting, which is so exciting. Do you want to discuss that we we slid into her DMs and you asked where the flower brooches were? <laughs> I did, and she was like, "Oh, they're there." Just can't show you everything. Yeah. So so there's your exclusive, guys. <laughs> the flower brooch will be coming back in some capacity. Do you think we're gonna see Miranda's coming out storyline then? Like she's not already gay. I think so, because who doesn't love a a late in life coming out storyline, right? And then is that Charlotte's storyline of how to make herself a better ally to Miranda? (laughs) Maybe. I mean, yeah, Miranda's going to be like the new Glennon Doyle or something. It'll be great. Ooh. Oh, in other SJP news, are you ready for Hocus Pocus 2? No. (laughs) Are you not a Hocus Pocus fan? I wasn't. Really? I've always been. Okay. I would love to be like too cool to be a Hocus Pocus stan because in recent years it has become a very chic thing. I don't know if it's chic, but just like a very internet thing to be obsessed with Hocus Pocus. But I am the original Hocus Pocus stan. I mean, I was a huge... um, Baby Thora Birch, right? Baby Thora Birch is in that. Baby Thora Birch is in it. But I was just going to say, I was a huge like childhood fan of Bette Midler. Like when I was a child, Bette Midler was my number one obsession, which is a story for another day. But I just love the idea of her and her and SJP getting back together and... Well, and I, Kathy Najimy too. That's what I was going to say. I'm a big Kathy Najimy fan. All yeah. the way back to Veronica's Closet. I mean, also killed it in the sister act legend. And I want to see Bette Midler act more. Like it's really fucked up that she doesn't get any roles anymore. I mean, Ryan Murphy kind of brought her into the fold in the second season of The Politician, but no one really watched that. And she was kind of second fiddle to Judith Light anyway. As you wrote on Sarah Jessica Parker's <laughs> announcement, Where's our Family Stone 2 and First Wives Club 2? Yeah, I mean, look, this makes me think that anything's possible between the Sex and the City reboot, the Hocus Pocus reboot. However, as as screenwriters ourselves who are trying to, you know, actively sell semi-original things, it is a little disheartening. I'll just put that out there. Like, Well, we could be writing Family Stone 2. We can put a Diane Keaton hologram in it or something. (laughs) That's uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's character thinks it'll be a great idea to do what Kanye did with Robert Kardashian with Diane Keaton. And is like, look what I did. I got she's back. This is a hologram. <laughs> I think that would be great. See, these, these are the kind of movies that I would love them to make sequels of. Movies like The First Wives Club. Put it on Netflix. Same with, it's like Three Men and a Baby. Make it. Put it on Netflix. Yeah, she's it doesn't good. matter if it's good or bad. The stakes aren't as high, you know. As long as it's 90 minutes, as we discussed before the podcast started. Yeah, I was talking about, I watched Woman in the Window last night. Lauren has yet to see the woman in the window. and I am the woman in the window. <laughs> I was saying that it's like, I don't really care about the quality of something so much as long as it's an hour and a half. When something gets to be two hours, two and a half hours, then if the quality is bad, if the writing's bad, what have you, then I start to get angry. But if it's an hour and a half, I'll watch anything. I don't care. I think we need to bring back 86 minute long films again. Yeah, totally. Although not for any of these movies we're suggesting. Like I want a four hour, three men and a baby sequel. Actually, that's what we want is a limited series. Limited series. each episode can go into their lives. We can go into Steve Gutenberg's life, Tom Selleck's life, Ted Danson's life. Those are the best kinds of movies. Do do another Father of the Bride movie. They are, but it's it's a Latino version. So it's Andy Garcia. Okay. And I think Gloria Estefan are the parents. Okay. Not mad at at Gloria Estefan 
getting a role. Anyway, speaking of Netflix things we should have written, <laughs> last week Netflix premiered the five-part Ryan Murphy-produced series on the influential American designer Halston, and it was very Ryan Murphy-y. Yeah. It, it, it was. In my opinion, it was neither an accurate drama about Halston, but nor was it a campy enough romp through New York in the 70s. Sure. I mean, full disclosure, I loved it. I don't even feel the need to talk shit about it. Was the writing incredibly heavy handed? Yes. Was it historically inaccurate? Sure. Like, did it need to be as long as it was? No. But when you cut out those sort of more extraneous plot lines, Battle of Versailles, then you don't get that full episode devoted to it. That I thought was the strongest episode. So to go go back, the show is based on Stephen Gaines' book, Simply Halston, which I was going to buy, but the book is out of print and is currently $600. Yeah, I've never read it. So the project actually dates back to the mid-90s when Christine Vachon, power lesbian icon, has produced every great movie or every movie that we love, like every Todd Haynes movie. Yeah, I shot Andy Warhol, Velvet Goldmine, Carol, and actually... Happiness, (laughs) most importantly. Perfect date film, Happiness. Yeah. But she actually had a Halston feature set up with Dan Minahan to direct. Dan Minahan. And this was in the mid-90s. And Dan Minahan would go on to direct all the episodes of the Netflix series. The direction is great. Production design, costume design. The writing is fucked. So I'm intrigued what they decided not to show. Because... I think we, what we did is we, well, you watched the documentary first, then watched the series. I watched the series, then watched the 2019 Halston documentary. Yeah, to, yeah, to clarify, we the 2019 Halston documentary is called Halston. There is a previous documentary called Ultra Suede, which is terrible. We're not discussing that tonight. And in that documentary, they talk about this chapter in his life, which I, I'm not sure why they didn't choose to show it on the show because it would have humanized him. Because the problem with Ewan McGregor's Halston is he is a fucking asshole from the jump, kind of for no reason. Yeah, it's a really... He's not a dynamic character. He's like one of those Disney villains that's coded as being gay, like Jafar from The Lion King or something. Like, he's that level of sinister homosexual from the first scene, which I'm not mad at, honestly. Yeah, yeah, and again, if you're going to go that direction, I'm absolutely fine with it. But there's this moment that they detail in the documentary where he gives his mentor, the designer Charles James, who's fallen on hard times and is about to go on welfare, a shot to design a collection for him and it's a fucking disaster and Halston ultimately has to lock him out of the atelier and from then on James would do interviews about how Halston basically stole from him and he's nothing more than a plagiarist he his work is like the opposite of Charles James or at least the style that he became famous for ultimately no but I think including that in the Ryan Murphy Halston series would have humanized Halston of like trying to help his mentor and it blowing up in his face and maybe that's a catalyst for him kind of becoming more jaded Yeah, they didn't really give an explanation for why he was such a cunt, but maybe he just was one. Gay men, right? (laughs) I mean. And it's fine. It's like, if you don't want to do a super serious inward character study, I'm fine with that. But then give me a scene where Elsa Peretti is taking a call from Halston in the Playboy bunny suit while Helmut Noon's taking a photo of her. Totally. Well, look, it's like we did, I think one thing about this that I really liked was seeing things that I never thought that I would see in a movie. Like I never thought I would see the seminal New York boutique paraphernalia in a movie or a backstory about Candace Bergen's bunny mask 
from Truman Capote's black and white ball or the whole Battle of Versailles thing. It's like all of that stuff to me as someone that loves fashion, that's read about all of this stuff. There is just something so satisfying about seeing it on screen. These sort of, these Easter eggs. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, Elsa Pretty was like the best part. Hands fucking down. I could have used more of that if I was developing a project about Halston. I would have focused equally on Halston and Elsa because they come from such drastically different backgrounds. They found themselves in the same sort of place. And they both had kind of the opposite experiences with selling out and licensing. Right. Like she has literally the best licensing, most lucrative and like respected licensing deal in history. And like he had like the worst. Can I just ask you a question? Hmm. Where was Warhol? I know. I mean, look. Did the estate not give them permission? No, the estate a thousand percent. Look, they had to pay to use all of those Warhols throughout the film in Liza's apartment, in Halston's apartment. And then, of course, we have, what's her face, Pat Ast, who's like a Warhol superstar that also was a Halston shop girl, basically. She ran the atelier and was in his fashion shows, which they don't really explain. It was super weird not having just like a two second Warhol cameo, especially because that's like we come to expect that. And it's also just like such a great opportunity for a big star or someone weird and random to do a cameo. Justin Theroux. I mean, I want someone weirder like Pete Davidson as Andy Warhol. Ooh, I'm not old enough, but I could see that. I could see that someday. What's your favorite fictional Warhol portrayal? What comes to mind first is uh, David Bowie in Basquiat, I guess. I yeah. also thought, like, I have no idea who played Andy Warhol in I Shot Andy Warhol, but they were good. Uh, it's Jared Harris, the British actor. Yeah, like, I have no idea who that is, but that he was, was... He was on Mad Men. Well, can we also talk about... Um... Guy Pierce? No, I was about to say Bill Hader in Men in Black 3. <laughs> Which they shot, you were working at V-Files, right? They shot it down the street from you. Yeah, they shut down like all of Mercer Street and turned it into the 1960s and parked all these 60s cars. And then, yeah, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones were standing on top of cars shooting people for like three days. It was pretty fab. I never saw Men in Black 3. I'm going to assume Bill Hader's an alien. And that's what we're saying about Andy Warhol? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would explain a few things, but look, there was no Warhol, sure. I think one thing that was really exciting to me about this was you got to see his inner circle. And again, these are personalities that I never thought I would see in a film or a television show. Oh yeah, it was so great to see Pat Cleveland prominently featured. Oh wait, no, she's not fucking there. (laughs) Yeah, that was weird. But then you get Victor Hugo, you know, his boyfriend slash one of the most iconic visual merchandisers of all time. Again, just to vis-a-vis the documentary to the series, there are so many what could be main cinematic moments portrayed in the documentary, such as the time Victor Hugo took the Warhols that Warhol did of Victor Hugo and cut them up and then showed Andy and was like, isn't this funny? And Warhol was like, I'm not doing these again for you. Well, also, you didn't really get to see like any of his windows. There's just that one scene where what's his face, the guy that was doing it previously was like, oh, he turned my window into a crime scene or whatever to connect for people who have seen the Halston series and are curious about the character Rory Culkin plays in the first episode. (laughs) I knew you were going to be obsessed with this. Uh, A character named Joel, an intravenous drug user, is Joel Schumacher. Yes, that Joel Schumacher. What are his IMDb credits? Okay, so... Oh, that's what I thought of a good nickname for you. IMDb Pro. (laughs) That's what I'm calling you from now on. 
Um, so Joel Schumacher, the man that, yes, ruined the Batman franchise by putting nipples on Batman and Batman and Robin. Uh, also gave us a time to kill, though, lest we forget. Joel Schumacher truly is a fashion and Hollywood Forrest Gump. He went to our alma mater, Parsons School of Design. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. He got his start doing the windows and designing for paraphernalia, which is also where Betsy Johnson got her start in clothing design. He knew Halston not because Halston walked by the windows of paraphernalia and was like, you kid, you come here. They met on Fire Island, which would have been a cool scene to show, but whatever. (laughs) Totally. Well, there are so many things... I mean, the most ridiculous parts of this to me were when they tried to make his design process cinematic or create plot points out of it. Like when, I don't know, whatever, the model goes outside in a suede trench coat and it's like rained on. And then then he's like, oh, I need to invent ultra suede. But it's like, okay, bitch, you didn't invent ultra suede. Yeah, wasn't that also Joel Schumacher where he's like, I left it out in the rain. (laughs) Anyway. Joel Schumacher then went from, as he says in the Halston documentary, an insane intravenous uh, speed user who almost lost all of his teeth. And Halston was like, get your fucking shit together. Uh, So that did actually happen. I can't even hate on this because in what universe did I ever think I would get to see a television show with Joel Schumacher's The Halston Era portrayed? It's amazing. Joel Schumacher broke into the film industry first by doing costumes for the Joan Didion film adaptation for Play It As It Lays. Hmm. Did not know that. He wrote the screenplays for Car Wash and The Wiz. Interesting. Yes. uh, He wrote and directed the OG Brad Pack film, St. Elmo's Fire. Mm -hmm. Directed Lost Boys. As we said, he potentially ruined the Batman franchise. And also, according to an iconic New York Magazine interview with him in 2019, has slept with between 10 and 20,000 men. Wow. What a legend. I found it interesting in this 2019 New York Magazine interview. He was asked about Ewan McGregor being cast and he was like, completely wrong casting. Do you know who he said should be cast? Hmm. Army Hammer. I mean, I'm not mad at that, actually. (laughs) I wasn't mad at Ewan McGregor. Did I think it was the best idea on the outset? No. Although he certainly has a lot of gay cred gay for pay cred from the Velvet Goldmine, also produced by Christine Vachon. So they've worked together before. That's such a good movie. If anyone uh, wants companion wants viewing. Wants more gay shit from Ewan McGregor, uh, look no further. And amazing styling. And, and Tony... Oh, incredible costume design, which also we should mention Halston absolutely has, or this this docuseries. The, the costume design was incredible. Thank God, you know. To go back to the series and my slight issues with it, why did they portray him as a hands-off designer? They made a lot of deliberate choices that were kind of... (sighs) Well, yeah, they're juggling a lot because they're like, he's a perfectionist, but they're also like, he's a raging addict. Yeah, I don't know what the reality of it actually was. And also not to educate viewers about how impactful his commitment to like the bias cut was to fashion history. Oh, do you remember the scene in the movie where he figured out the bias cut? Oh, when he's... No, no, no. It was He was like walking down the street looking for inspiration and he sees like a statue that's a female torso and there's like a scrap of fabric blowing against it in the wind. It's like, I'm pretty sure it didn't happen that way, but And so much of the dialogue in the show, like subtext is text. I don't understand how there wasn't a scene where it's like he's on the floor ripping up fabric and someone goes, what is he doing? Oh, he's cutting the dress on the bias. Bias? Oh, yeah. Bias (laughs) is when you cut the fabric on a diagonal. It's how his dresses are draped the way they do like no it's it's totally it was like when um when they got off the plane in france 
going to the Battle of Versailles and Liza Minnelli's literally like, this is historic. It's like Liza Minnelli never fucking said that. And also no one realized that this was historic until after the fact, which I guess we should, since we've mentioned it twice, we should do a brief explanation of what we're talking about here. The Battle of Versailles was a fashion show in the early 70s in France where five American designers and five French designers, I guess, kind of competed against each other unofficially. Right. Uh, in this huge benefit that was basically happened because uh, Versailles had fallen into disrepair. They were trying to raise money to restore it. This was a major um, plot point in the second episode. And yeah, it was so that was so fun to see for me. Although I'm sad that we didn't see, there were so many celebs at Battle of Versailles. Elizabeth Taylor was there, all these people. It's like, I could have used a couple of celeb cameos. That's, I think, the point that I'm making. If you want to make a campy series, which is Ryan Murphy's brand, lean into that. He really invented the idea of putting celebrities in the front row, which I don't know why they didn't show that. Well, there was a lot of things that were historic about Halston that weren't really explicitly stated, like casting so many black models in his show at the time, I mean, and still today, was like very, very unusual. It's like he He, discovered Pat Cleveland. Yeah, he put Amon in her first fashion show. This is what I'm talking about. I don't understand why these weren't featured. Well, there's so many things to pack in. It's like you kind of at a certain point have to pick and choose. Like how long is this going to be? How many times can we show him going into Studio 54? Studio 54 is like something that obviously we've seen portrayed in a lot of films and television shows when I was watching it I was thinking like you know what they need to build a studio 54 on like Tyler Perry studios (laughs) just because like how many production designers have had to replicate that giant moon with the coke spoon hanging over the dance floor just do it once one and done do you know my mom went to studio 54 oh love that yeah several times but she's always gotta have her on the pod it's not gonna sorry mom it's not gonna be an interesting interview because she's like i never saw people having sex or doing drugs okay i was so interested in the sex aspect of it because i read this amazing well i guess it wasn't that amazing it was pretty amazing though on vogue.com they did this q a between hamish bowles ryan murphy and tom ford about the halston docuseries i will throw the link to it in the show notes this especially relevant it's a limited series docuseries is like tiger oh yeah yeah sorry limited series i'm so used to calling every netflix thing a docuseries because it usually is. fair enough tom ford was talking about the studio 54 scene and he was like that was the most legit part when he looked over and saw victor hugo fucking that guy right because that's exactly how it was and I was like oh shit I always assumed that people that had sex at Studio 54 were doing so in some sort of back room but apparently they were fully just like out on the balcony I do wonder if my father took my mom to a different club and just said it was Studio (laughs) 54 (laughs) okay another thing I want to talk about was the girl that died in the air event I did research as portrayed by Bette Midler's daughter okay so I'm watching this and I'm like why is Bette Midler having trouble getting into Studio 54 (laughs) I was like, because of my childhood Bette Midler fandom, I know that Bette Midler was like at Studio 54 all the time. So I was like, what the fuck is going on? Why is she trying to sneak in? Your bridge and tunnel. Yeah, and no, it's just because they cast her daughter as a random chick, which is like, why not cast her daughter as Bette Midler? I could have used more like children of celebrities playing their parents in the Studio 54 sequence. That anecdote, so what we're discussing is in, I don't know, episode three or four, when Studio 54 is raided, they found a dead body in the vents, which is portrayed by Bette Midler's daughter playing a, a bridge and tunnel person who couldn't get into Studio 54. So that comes from the 
2018 Studio 54 documentary, but it was a guy in a tuxedo that was found dead in the vents. See, that's even more cinematic. The truth that they chose not to portray is way more cinematic than the fiction they chose to portray. Another thing is Halston actually wanted to do that JCPenney deal. It wasn't forced upon him and it would have been so much more dramatic to show that he was so basically freaked out by Perry Ellis and Calvin Klein and Donna Karen that he didn't know what to do in the 80s so he made this decision. And another thing that's said in the in the Halston documentary is that the owner of Bergdorf's, so Bergdorf Goodman gave Halston his start as a hat maker, saw the banner for the JCPenney Halston thing immediately canceled all the Halston orders. Like the next day he's like, get fucking everything out of here. I mean, we have so much to learn from this story because he, it's, it is all about timing. Like Halston was incredibly ahead of his time. Today, there's 10,000 designers that are doing these kind of licensing deals and collabs and H&M collections. And-, and he wasn't the only one at the time who was over-licensing. That's what happened with Gucci. Pierre Cardin also. Yeah. I don't know. This story is so applicable to today now that every individual is a brand in some capacity and yeah. like how tragic it is when you become a brand and then you stop identifying as a person and start identifying as your brand and then when something happens to your brand you lose your mind and feel like you have nothing left to live for which is basically what happened to Halston yes and in theory it's portrayed that way but in execution could have been done slightly better okay but whatever did you enjoy watching it here's my thing look I love no Really? Because I loved watching it. I, you know, little kids like watching movies about magical fairy lands with princesses and dragons and shit. To me, this is that equivalent. To me, like his Olympic Tower office, like that's my magical fairyland. So oh, I no, like just that, being that in part, that space. Look, the, the writer in me can't help but be slightly annoyed because I'm like, we could have done this better. Okay. I love Ryan Murphy. To me, Ryan Murphy is a lot like Jeremy Scott in that he does two terrible shows and then one incredible show. Right. And then two more terrible shows and one more incredible show. And the the cycle repeats infinitely. So it's like for every like the normal heart, there's a boys in the band. Or for every American crime story, there's like the politician. But even the bad Ryan Murphy things, even the ones that are... You're saying Ryan Murphy's like pizza, even when it's bad, it's good. Even when it's bad, it's good. I, f- I stand by that. Look, the the writing is not always great. They have this sort of contrived sense of camp sensibility that doesn't always land. But at the same time, he's telling the stories that I care about. He's doing it. And I, I was thinking while I was watching this, I was like, I bet that Ryan Murphy relates to Halston a lot. Because oh, well, every review noted that. Did they? Basically, the missive of most reviews about this Halston limited series was like, it's a creative genius who slaps his name on everything until he doesn't know who he is anymore. Wait, are we talking about Halston or Ryan Murphy? Whatever. Kills it. What did you think of Liza? Uh, The actress that betrayed her or just the whole storyline? Yes, I'm not asking you what you think of Liza Minnelli in general. Um, At first, I was annoyed by the actress, and then I I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I kind of felt the same way, although I felt that even though there's many aspects of it that were technically good, like, I do feel like she really captured her mannerisms and, like, 
especially in the scenes where she was dancing and stuff like that. But there was something, there's something that's lost. And I get that that thing is lost, that it's not literally Liza. And I'm so used to watching her perform and watching her in films. But I've just, I have yet to get a cinematic portrayal of her that has really hit the spot for me. Like there was also a fake Liza in um, Fosse Verdon, which shockingly enough was not a Ryan Murphy joint. And yeah, I, I think it's really hard. Maybe it's because she is unusual looking and they always cast more classically beautiful actors and it's just like not the same. I thought this actress had the look down. As a fellow bug-eyed woman, <laughs> I, I appreciated it. It's important for bug-eyed representation. Rotation, yeah. You know, that, that actress, Emma Stone, me, Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Um, Halston killed it. Love it. Do we want to get into the Sarah Jessica Parker connection to Halston just to wrap things up? Sure, sure. Um, So Halston, after Halston left, is kind of a cursed brand. You know, for every uh, Gucci or Vuitton, you have a Halston, which they have basically, since he left in the 80s, tried to revive it with Randolph Duke, a bunch of other people. And then in 2007, Hilco Consumer Capital and Weinstein Company, yes, Harvey Weinstein's company, acquired Halston. In 2019, they named... Wasn't Rachel Zoe somehow involved in this? Uh, yeah, I can't remember if they appointed her before or after Sarah Jessica Parker. So in 2010, they tapped Sarah Jessica Parker as the president and chief creative officer for their secondary label, Halston Heritage, and she would leave a year later. And she wore many of these Halston Heritage pieces in Sex and the City, too. As I'm sure we will see many SJP collection shoes in... In Just Like and That. And Just Like That. It's true. As a brand, Halston really is like a corpse that's been dead for an hour that people just keep shocking on the operating table and like hoping for the best. And it's sad, especially when I'm looking at brands today like Bottega Veneta, Celine that are taking so much inspiration from Halston and that sort of minimalist style. It is really primed for a comeback if they cared to hire Phoebe Philo as a creative director. And watch her make it a sustainable label. Sustainable ultra suede. So now that we've talked about the fashions of the 70s, I thought we could talk about what's happening in fashion now, not on Vogue Runway. We're talking about in the world. In the streets, On the streets. Because we're almost back... We're still mid-pandemic, but things are are getting back to normal. People are wearing heels again. My main hope is that we can finally stop talking about sweatpants. You say looking me dead in the eyes as I'm wearing <laughs> sweatpants. Okay, I'm not saying that wearing sweatpants is bad. I'm not a monster. I appreciate the look of a good sweatsuit. And generally speaking, I like clothing that's comfortable. But sweatpants have dominated the conversation for a year now. I'm just like sick of talking about them. Move on to pajamas or caftans or Ugg boots. It's like there's plenty of comfortable shit to wear if that's what you care about. I will say that for me, it's like dressing down or dressing really up. But what I'm having trouble with is the in-between. Right. I went into my go-to, I guess, slightly fast fashion company that I love dearly is Aritzia. Uh-huh. And so I... Okay. <laughs> Interesting take. <laughs> Whomever their fit model is has my proportions, okay? Like everyone... Which are like insane proportions that no one but Lauren has, by the way. (laughs) And this Aritzia fit model. It used to be Zara, but then Zara switched their sizing and now it's Aritzia. But I fear that they maybe have changed their fit model because things are starting to not fit me. If things are fitting you, it means they're not fitting literally anyone else. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's the cost of like fitting, fitting you well. 
There needs to be petite people with big butt representation, okay? You don't know my pain, Chelsea. <laughs> You're right, I do not. Anyway, I went into the Aritzia over, over the weekend at the Century City Mall, and it was dominated with sweatpants. It was all athleisure. I think what happened was when the pandemic set in, they were like, well, this is how it's going to be. And they started to design a whole lifestyle around sweatsuits. And now it's in the store almost a year later. And I'm walking in and I'm like, I don't want this. I don't want it either. And you know what people aren't designing? Beautiful separates with elastic waistbands. Like no one's talking about a beautiful like pleats please pant or a shirt or a caftan or something right now when that's what I would actually like to see people wearing if it's about like not being constricted by your clothes. Also, Zara has completely abandoned us. I don't know if we're too old, but I looked at everything on the Zara website right now, and I think they just designed for Gen Z. No, I, look, I it's coming from someone that just placed a very large <laughs> Zara order. No, I appreciate Zara, despite the very jarring e-com experience of shopping there. But a lot of stuff on Zara is too extra, and I think we're coming into an era where people are going to be very overdressed. Before the pandemic... We were in a place where everyone was really extra. Celebrities are trying to one-up each other on the red carpet. Normal people are wearing like full looks, you know, with the hat that matches the jacket, that matches the pants, that match the shoes, whatever. I feel like now it's just going to be that, but like times 10 because everyone's dressing for Instagram. Everyone's been wearing sweatpants all year and now everyone's going to be overcompensating. So my advice to our listeners You know when our homegirl Coco Chanel said, take one thing off before you leave the house? I would consider taking two to three things off before you leave the house. And should a mask be one of them? I mean, maybe. Look, I'm just saying it's not about being overdressed. It's better to be underdressed than to be overdressed. So be mindful of that. That really was a a micro trend that I thought was going to last longer, which was designers designing masks that match your entire outfit. See, I was into that in the beginning, but I don't want it anymore. I don't even want, I know it sounds bad, but I don't even want reusable masks anymore. Like in early pandemic, I like had my 69 masks. I had my vampire's wife mask. I was like into that vibe, but now I want a K95 mask and that's it. And I want to throw it away and, and I don't want to wear it outside unless I absolutely have to or am in contact with a large group of people that are all wearing masks. <laughs> Although it is really weird to be in this place now where half the people on the streets are wearing masks and half the people aren't. Yeah, we were having a drink in West Hollywood last weekend and people were walking their dogs maskless. Well, it's like if you're double vaxxed, who really cares? So mass off tits out? Well, that's the other thing. I think people are going to dress sluttier than ever. Like I know I am. Yeah. I mean, well, okay. I'm coming out of this pandemic a thought. <laughs> because single people have been so horny this entire time because they haven't been getting fucked. What are you talking about, Chelsea? <laughs> And now, now it's like time to go out. Not only is it time to go out, but everyone's like trying to make up for losing a year of their dating life. So I think that this slutty dressing is also going to extend to some gay men. Certainly, again, I live in West Hollywood and like the amount of guys wearing crop tops now is wild. Everyone's wearing crop tops and sweatpants, basically dressing like Kylie Jenner, regardless of one's gender. It's wild. Slide into our DMs and let us know if you want us to do an IGTV video about a more extensive how how we should be dressing post-pandemic. <laughs>
Yeah, it's funny because it's like every time I leave the house, it feels like a combination of the first day of middle school when everyone's like pulling out their fits from like Delia's or Wet Seal or right. this is really aging me. So today it would be what? Fashion Nova. Princess Polly. Forever 21. House of Sunny. That Shine one that's like Sheen. Sheen Hog. I don't know. I don't know. It's like a combination of that in that first day of spring in New York where just because the sun's out, like everyone starts wearing cutoffs and crop tops, even though it's still fully 40 degrees outside. What are you going to dress like coming out of this pandemic? I know you're changing your style up. I just want to dress as simply as possible. I'm over logos. I'm over, not that I was ever a big logo person anyway. I'm over prints. I'm over all of it. I just want to wear like simple, easy clothes. I just want to dis, I want to wear clothes that disappear almost. Right now I'm just wearing a black sweater and a black pair of jeans and a black pair of tabbies. Like that's all I need to do. Are you going to become like Jay Leno? Are you going to have a uniform? Okay, well, I'm not doing a Canadian tuxedo every day. P.S. I told you I saw Jay Leno at Pavilions recently, right? No. Yeah, I did. What, he was wearing, what old-timey car was he in? He, I don't know what old-timey car he was in, but he was wearing the Canadian tuxedo and he was shopping for groceries with his wife. Very nice. Yeah, I remember when I was in high school and I had just gotten my license and so I was driving around on Mulholland on a Sunday morning and he was driving a 1920s fire truck. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that is fucking extra. Yeah. I'm going to be like Jay Leno <laughs> minus the fire truck. All right, now that we've bored you to death with our new style personas, I think it's time for you guys to get excited because we're doing a very special Kardashian segment. Kardashaholics Anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. <laughs> so before me, I have a bounty of 818 tequila. I have a little, I have a shot of the... In Yeho, I have a shot of the, what is it? The silver called? The Blanco. The Blanco. And then I have a Paloma, which you made with, what, the Blanco, I assume? Yes, and grapefruit juice. I just want to take the time to say before our assholes get shredded once again in the podcast reviews, we don't (laughs) think Kendall should have started a tequila company, okay? We agree she should have started some $5 can CBD anxiety drink. Okay, look, we love the Kardashians despite the fact that they are cultural appropriators, and this week they're making it extra hard for us to defend them. But that's mostly because I'm not really so offended by the fact that she has a tequila company in all honesty, but she's not helping herself with the promotional video that she released for said tequila company, which which featured her in the agave fields of Mexico wearing what some might call migrant sheep. She's riding a white horse. And if we've learned anything from like the past 75 years of American Vogue editorials is that if you're a model on a white horse in a field of farm workers, that's going to look imperialistic. You're going to look like a colonizer that's just like very basic optics and can i also make a slight distinction i see a lot of people commenting that it's like it's her tequila farm it's her distillery it's not this tequila was made by contract distilling so she's not out in the fields being like well even if it was she wouldn't be out in the fields but this company makes uh her brand and 67 other brands of tequila So tell me, Lauren, like you procured this tequila. Where did you get it? What happened? It was released on Monday. So it's only being released one in the United States and now currently only in California. Kendall hopped on the uh, 818 truck and went from Calabasas and then went into West Hollywood where she stopped at Melon Rose, which is where I picked up the tequila and I missed her by like 10 or 15 minutes. 
And that's the one that's across the street from the Vivian Westwood store, right? It's a block over from also, the Vivian Westwood store. Also, shout out to whatever listener alerted us to uh, oh, where it was going to be. Yeah. yeah. We appreciate you so much. So there was a display that I tried to take the bottles off of and it like almost knocked down and the sales guy was just like, what do you want? And I was like, uh, a Blanco and a Añejo. He was like, there you go. It was easy for me to procure. My father, who's an <laughs> avid listener of this podcast, Andy, we love you. And an avid, um, does he love tequila? He's more of a wine guy isn't he Uh, yeah why he has it around there's nothing andy loves more than a celebrity spirits line anyway so he went to the bevmo in the valley procured a couple more bottles of blanco and reported that they were limiting how much you could buy and the bevmo in van nuys was completely sold out wow all right shall we do a little sippy sip yeah where uh shall we start with the the blanco okay sure Mm. she's good I'm not mad at it. See, I wouldn't... Yeah, no. You know what? I fuck with it. I wouldn't normally sip a silver tequila. Like, I would... It's for mixing. It's for mixing, exactly. Which is why I want to try it in this Paloma that you've made for me. Okay. Now we're trying it What in time did you make Palomas? Like, at 6 a.m. or something? Yeah, we should say that we're, uh, by this time we're recording at noon. I think I made these at 10 a.m. Oh, yeah. That's a great Paloma. Thank you. What did you use? Like, the Bon Appetit recipe? All my own, baby. Just from memory. It's great. That I approve of. Let's, let's, shall we do uh, uh, Añejo? Añejo time? Okay. We didn't do Reposado because neither of us like it. Yeah, sorry. Ooh, she's sweet. No, 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 no. You know what? I do believe Kendall had a hand in making this because that's definitely a note of someone who was like, you know, I don't like Añejo because it's too strong. Like, what if we just made it better tasting? No, it's not. This is, I, I, because you and me both, we usually go for a Casa Amigos in Yeho, no? Yeah. This is, compared to Casa Amigos or most in Yeho's, it is unusually sweet, which is not really what you want in a sipping tequila, or at least it's not what I want in a sipping tequila. But I can see that it's definitely something Kendall wants in yeah. a sipping tequila. Now I'm curious about the- what the reposado, like how sweet the reposado actually is. All right. Well, we'll, we'll Maybe co- for next week, we'll circle back on that. To go back to the ads, it's the same exact ad that every celebrity does. Like George Clooney and The Rock have done that same exact ad for their tequila brands, which is just that like walking around in dressed down jeans amongst the agave at magic hour right here's my pitch for the 818 tequila ads which is i think she should have leaned into the whole white valley girl aesthetic and as a white valley girl i understand this aesthetic which is like (laughs) that's my culture (laughs) guys how dare you say white girls in the valley don't have culture i wanted her to be like in a red leather booth at casa vega dressed in like vintage pastel chanel with Haley and bella sipping 818 I think this actually honestly didn't need a commercial. When this first came out, and I'm like, oh, it's not called Kendall's Tequila. It's not like her face is on the bottle or anything like that. I kind of assumed that she wouldn't be doing stuff like this, that she wouldn't be marketing like this, because we all know it's her tequila brand. Right. It's not like necessary for the consumer to connect 818 with Kendall Jenner because it's like we've always known. We've only associated it with Kendall Jenner, not the other way around. I don't think it's necessary. It's also so weird because after the Pepsi commercial debacle (laughs) where she handed the cop a Coke. A Pepsi. Or a Pepsi, whatever. (laughs) 
that scandal, the fallout from that was something that was really upsetting to her because she's not someone that really has faced a lot of criticism compared to the other Kardashians. Yeah, but they have memories like seahorses. But I'm just surprised that she would... Because she thought this was a good idea. That's the other problem. She doesn't think there's anything wrong with what she's doing. Yeah. And there's no one around her to be like, hey, don't do that. Because it's like, you can do it. You can have a tequila company. You just don't need those additional optics of you riding a white horse through the agave fields. Like no one needs to see that. And no one wants to see that more importantly. Like I doubt even the most hardcore Kendall Kendall fans were like, oh my God, I'm so glad this exists. They would have wanted some Instagram aesthetic photo shoot. Yeah, exactly. Which is what I just pitched. Yeah. Moving on. So Chris took part in the ABC digital upfronts to tease their upcoming Hulu show. She basically said nothing. She said, this is the next chapter. It's a new show. You'll see us evolving as a family. Fans want to see us to be who we are since moment one. They've been emotionally invested in our show just like how we are. So I I think they've done nothing. They've shot nothing. And she's giving us nothing. Well, where did I hear? Was it Dumois that I heard this rumor about Kim not being involved in the show anymore? That's not humanly possible. I thought I would be. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I thought I read it's it's Chris, it's Kim, it's Chloe. The ones who still want to be part of the show. Oh, okay. I feel like Kylie, Kendall, Courtney don't want to deal with this. Well, definitely Courtney and Kendall, Caitlyn, if we're still Rob. keeping her in the fold. Rob definitely doesn't give a shit. It's it's Scott is mostly the person that gives a shit. Scott needs this. Yeah. For his soul. For his sobriety, for his well, actually he's not sober, but for his mental well being. Yeah, he's the one who's not gonna deal with it the best. They I mean they showed it on the I on the show. Scott. Don't you? It's a wonderful character arc from him, from, you know, douchebag asshole to to father of us all. Yeah. Yeah, I really love Scott, honestly. Shall we move on to This is a story you actually researched, and I know because you were like, I went down a K-hole. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Okay. So if you don't live in Los Angeles, there's a little place called Julian's Auctions <laughs> that routinely does very iconic, often very campy celebrity auctions. So they just did one about Janet Jackson. The next one is like Elvira. Have you ever bid on anything from Julian's auctions? Uh, Yeah, because I wanted to buy a small little box from the Robert Evans sale, but everything was like $50,000. Really? Yeah. I. You know what I bid on? What? Joan Collins turbans. That checks out. Okay, well, they were like the cheapest. There's like, I don't know, four or five of them. And they were like the cheapest polyester turbans that you buy from Amazon, whatever. But I'm like, they're Joan Collins. And the estimate was like 200 to $400. So I was like, worth it, whatever. But then, of course, once it went like above that, I was like, I, I don't care this much. Yeah, I actually sat through part of the Robert Evans digital auction and just watched everything go for insane amounts it's of money. It's really fun to watch, honestly. Yeah, you know what? Maybe we should do an Instagram live where we're drinking our 818 tequila and just on a Julian's auction live commentating like it's an Oscars red carpet. Totally. Okay, so they did this big Janet Jackson sale last week and Kim purchased this outfit that Janet Jackson wore in the music video for If. Maybe the most iconic Janet Jackson video. I don't know if it's the most iconic, but it's it's one of her biggest bops, like obviously. So she was wearing like these black flared pants and then this cropped vest that had these rows of polished bones sewn onto the breast. So it was clearly inspired by American indigenous attire. And it's like, 
Kim, of all the things in this show, it's like you could have bought a nice navy pinstriped Richard Tyler suit. You had to find the one culture that you haven't had a cultural appropriation scandal with yet. Uh, yeah, maybe she wanted to collect them all. You know, it's like you could have bought the sweater from the Scream video. Exactly. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole trying to ID this outfit because it's unlabeled in the auction catalog. Although... I do believe that it's Rifat Ozbek, who, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, is a Turkish designer that had a major moment in the late 80s and early 90s and was very famous for basically cultural appropriation from like every culture, kind of like Gautier, similar vibes. A good designer, I would say. Um, And he made these very specific looking, again, American indigenous inspired bone jackets from that same exact period. Janet wore a lot of his clothes just in general. So I believe this to be a custom piece from him, but I don't know. I don't know why they wouldn't be able to authenticate it. It could be a copy. That's obviously possible. But this is the kind of shit that I do at, at midnight, going down these rabbit holes. I think if people are listening to this podcast, this is the the level of obsession they expect from us. I hope so. You know what I was thinking? I was like, after I did this, I was like, I should try and get a job at Julian's auction. That's honestly. what I was thinking. Honestly. I literally, I set a LinkedIn alert. I was like, as much as I enjoy being a gun for hire, I think I could really be at home at Julian's auctions. Yeah, just authenticating Joan Collins' turbans. Yeah, and then I could also do their social, make it pop off. Love that for me. Love that for them. If anyone at Julian's Auctions wants to um, get at me us, up, please, yeah. please get at me. But yeah, so I'm like, is she? please don't tell me she's going to wear this for Halloween. Like, where is she wearing this? I don't know how she would be able to because her proportions are so insane. It would essentially have to be rebuilt for her body. Mm, Well, the good thing about the vest is that it is so cropped. It's like halter style vest. So you don't have to deal with her waist or her hips, which I don't know how the pants are happening. Maybe they're stretchy. Who knows? It's kind of hard to see. They're kind of nondescript and boring. But although I I guess she has to get all of Kanye and Axel Vervat's stolen Roman sculptures out of her Hidden Hills house. So maybe that's how she's replacing them. Yeah. She's going to get a full mannequin and just put that there. Uh, oh, Cam. Again, they're they're making it hard for us this week. Anyway. In conclusion, don't buy 818 and Yeho. Buy that Blanco. I'm only saying this because we were very savagely omitted from the 818 um, (laughs) PR list. PR list. We do not have our 818 trucker hats. Anyway, I don't know what we're going to... Oh, what are we talking about next week? Yeah. Believe it or not, Lauren and I do have some semblance of lives. um, That don't involve each other. They don't involve each other. We're doing this podcast. So for the next month on and off, we're both going to be taking vacations separately, by the way, in case you were wondering. (laughs) But we're going to try and keep the content coming. We just are going to have a couple of episodes that are pre-recorded and more topical and less like the news stories of the, the week. Get excited because next week we will be doing an episode focusing on the Sex and the City LA episodes. Because if you haven't heard um, us say the phrase, for those of you who don't live in Los <laughs> Angeles enough, you're really going to be getting it next week. And also for the people that shit on us because this podcast is not exclusively about sex in the city, get excited because yeah. next week's episode, 
Completely. All sex in the city. All. Thank you guys again for listening and have a lovely week. And we love you and we love all of you who are leaving reviews. It makes our day, it makes our parents day when we read them these reviews. It does. It's really cute. It's really, I guess, as two people that are really used to seeing the discourse on Instagram, it is really jarring to do something like this and to not have any idea what people think about it. Although, actually, another thing we need to acknowledge is the Magnolia Hive, which... (laughs) Fuck, I love you guys, honestly. Like the the DMs, the comments on our account and our personal accounts and texts that I've gotten from people expressing their love for Magnolia and their desire for an entire episode about Magnolia. It just makes me really happy. Yes, and if these pre-recorded episodes go well, maybe we'll do three weeks topical and then one week each month dedicated to a special topic. Yeah, of our choice, your choice. Look, we're still figuring out our format. We're still finding our voices, you know? We're still finding our monotone voices. <laughs> I know. All right. I love, anyway, love, love you guys. Love you. <laughs> I love you, Chelsea. Love you, Lauren. <laughs> but I do not love your sick and twisted neighbor. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.